0: Hi everyone and welcome to the new edition of My Inspiration, a brand new podcast series from h which we give musicians, actors, filmmakers and writers a chance to take a welcome break from talking about themselves and instead talk about their greatest inspiration. Someone who's been a big influence on their lives and have formed their own work. I'm your host, Tom Goodwin, and I'm delighted to welcome you to our latest episode. I'm joined today by our producer, James Forian, Hello. and today's guest. Today's guest began his career on the stages of London's West End at the start of the 21st century and has worked his way up to become one of Britain's most successful actors. After catching the eye in Ian Drury, Biopic Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, and British comedy Tamara Drew, he scored his first big role in the Hobbit trilogy, playing the stoic Bard the Bowman. That was a performance which landed him the role of Owen Shaw the villain in the sixth instalment of Fast and Furious. And from there, his career has grown and grown, with key roles in The Girl on the Train, High Rise, Beauty and the Beast, and lavish TV series The Alienist. We're speaking to him today as he prepares to launch his debut album, At Last, which arrives on 22nd of
1: November. So please welcome Luke Evans. Hi. How is it going? It's going really well. Really well indeed, yeah. Um, This is my first day of press, so I'm uh, I'm keeping my levels up while we... uh, Talk about my mm-hmm. my upcoming album, which has been, uh, which is exciting to be honest. Because I'm usually into, in, I'm used to talking to people about movies, mm-hmm. in this situation, and not about an album. So yeah, I'm very happy to be here talking
0: to you. So, when well, how did this come about, and how did you find the time to do it? Because you're an actor you who seems to have a lot of big gaps in this schedule.
1: No, um, I knew it was going to be tight. Once the ball started rolling, once we'd signed the deal with BMG to do the album was exactly the same time that I started shooting the second season of The Alienists, which is a TV show I did for TNT and Netflix. Um, So I've been in Budapest for the last six months shooting this show, which is a huge show. Uh, Most of my time is committed to it. Once we had spent a few months narrowing down the tracks for the album from like a list of 60 down to 12, um, I then had to find time to come back to London to record it. We thought about, we ummed and odd whether we would, shoot, we would record it in Budapest, and they have studios there. But Steve Anderson, the producer, he likes to work from a studio where he felt that I would be very comfortable also, Psalm Studios in Ladbroke Grove. Um, so we, I decided, okay, well then I'll fly home on a, late on a Friday night. I get in at like midnight Sleep till seven, go to the studio at nine, record all day, um, go back to bed, mm. wake up on the Sunday morning, come back and do the same thing, and then catch the afternoon flight back to Budapest. Shoot all week, and then I did that for three weekends. I shot the whole thing, shot the whole album in five days. Was shot. I recorded the <laughs> whole album in five days.
0: I mean, when did the idea kind of come about that you were going to do I album? Mean, is it something you've always wanted to do, or was it
1: suggested to you? Or um... it's, I'm a singer. Um, I'm an actor, but I'm first and foremost, I'm a singer. I've been singing my whole life. Um, when I was 16, I left school and I got a job. And the first thing I took out of that wage, even before paying my mum and dad was 15 quid a week to pay for a singing lesson. And it was the first singing lesson I ever had. And those lessons went on to winning competitions And then I went to London to audition for a scholarship, which I won in King's Cross, which is literally where we are right now, which is so weird. I just walked down the street where I went to college. And that's how it began. So I come from a singing background. I ended up in musical theatre for eight years, which I loved. and was very fun. But during this whole process, my ultimate dream was to be a recording artist, a solo artist, and and sing, and just be me. And I feel that... uh, what 's happening right now is something that 's been sort of waiting to happen for a very long time, and I guess it 's all intertwined with my success as a, as an actor on film with the you know the profile that 's been building over the last twelve years because of my films and the international presence I have um, means that i 've got more people that might want to listen to me sing and, and hear how I sing or what I sing and um, If I sing well, if I sing bad, (laughs) you know, there's a lot of people who would be interested to know. So uh, it's all sort of grown organically to this point where now I've got an album. You said you went from
0: 60 songs now to 12. I mean, how
1: did you find that process? Well, I have a very eclectic taste in music. Um, But I wanted to... I also listen to a lot of female singers. Um, That's really where I've always... That's what I listen to. I don't know why. i just from... Florence and the Machine, you know, through to the big, big black divas to just i, I literally it's super eclectic. But my taste has been a lot of female singers. and uh, So a lot of them went, went on the list. There's like a track by Gladys Knight, for example. I mean, really quite extraordinary stuff, which I, you wouldn't necessarily think a man would sing those songs. So um, it took a while to get it down to 12, um, but all of them were... What I like to describe as there' sort of a soundtrack to my life. We all have a soundtrack, and I'm sure if you picked songs from your life, they would be very different to mine. And the song that we might both know would r- remind you of something completely different to what it would remind me of that happened in my life at that point. For, like the Fugees, um, I remember Killing Me Softly when that song was released. I remember it was when I first moved out of home and I had an apartment with a friend of mine, like a bedsit, little shithole in, in Cardiff when I was 16. And that song was number one. And, you know, every time I hear it, I'm back in that bedsit, you know, eating baked beans and Mm -hmm. buying cheap food from the supermarket, bargain baskets. Mm -hmm. I mean, you talked about the kind of the
0: contained space of time. Were you able to enjoy recording or was it just a case of kind of, let's get it done? Oh,
1: no, I loved it. I mean, there's nothing better if you're a singer to be able to have complete and utter silence with a perfect clarity of a recording of the arrangement, the orchestration in the background, you're in a studio, the lights are down, it's just you, your voice, your headphones and the producer in the other room mixing the whole thing and you're able to try things out and you don't have to... When you sing in a studio, it's very different to singing live for a start start because the microphones are extremely sensitive so you're able to pull back an awful lot more and um, it's interesting how you can play with your voice in a studio um, and find something that not necessarily you could do in a live situation, um, which I really enjoyed very much. I mean, I love singing, so, you know, I couldn't wait to get on the plane from Budapest and take that hat off Mm. and put the other hat on as a singer. Did you have any kind of songs of your own that you might consider throwing in or for any future career? I, I have a few what I would call poems that I think would work, which I guess are essentially lyrics, you know. Um, that I would like to put to music. I'm not a musician. I don't read music. I've never read music, weirdly, as a, somebody who's been in musical theatre. I I listen by ear and I pick up a tune by ear. And um, I couldn't tell you what is a C or, or G minor or any of that. I just sing it. Um, which has sort of released me a lot from the structure of, of music making, but also means I can't write my own. I can, I can sing a tune though and mm. record it and somebody can put a, put a you know, dots to it, mm. which possibly would be how, mm. how I would do it in the
0: future. And away from from music, obviously you've got Midway in cinemas at the moment. We spoke to Roland Emmerich a few weeks ago and he told me that he wasn't going to cast any British actors until someone suggested
1: you for McCluskey. So it uh, must nice. have been a hell of an undertaking. Yeah. <clears throat> yes, um, that is interesting yeah i mean um playing firstly playing an american in in itself is a challenge you know because it's not your accent and it's somebody else's and you have to learn how to do it well and believable um then when you play somebody who actually existed and not just existed but did something extraordinary with their lives and is a war hero um you have a real responsibility to do a good job. it, but it was very fun. I liked the challenge of taking on somebody who you know historically has left his mark and was a, was a massive part of the success of the Battle of Midway. I mean he is a hero i mean if it wasn 't for his hunch, um, the, the war possibly could have gone on for much longer and ended in a very different way and then the away from midway, the next thing I guess everyone will
0: see is the second alienist, or will there be something before that
1: oh yeah, no, there 's something else before that. I think state like sleep is coming out with um, Catherine Mortison, and um, well, she plays the lead character in it. There's a few other brilliant actors in it, too. I have Dreamland coming out. I think that'll come out in the spring. Um, And Angel of Mine, as well, is getting a a cinematic release with me and Numi Rapace and Yvonne Strakowski. Uh, I hope I've said her surname correctly. Mm -hmm. Um, That makes Tale. Yeah. That's the lady. Yeah. Yes. So there's a few other things. Coming, coming out as well before. But the, yeah, then the, the big film will be... Uh, the big TV show, The Angel of Darkness, second season. They haven't given it a release date yet because we started much later than we did the first season, so it might be a little later in the year, but they haven't been given a definite start date yet.
0: Okay. And we've got you here today to uh, to talk about your inspiration um, and asked if we could
1: pick a musical one, and of course we said
0: yes. And do not tell us who you've gone for?
1: Well, I'm a little scared now, I've said who I've said, because... I have been inspired by many people, and to, to put it down just to one person is hard because I feel like not one person has had a massive impact on my one individual person has had an impact on my life. But the one I chose is because it it left a mark on me, technically, emotionally, and at an age where I probably shouldn't have been listening to. That kind of music, not mm. shouldn't have. It's not nothing bad about it, but it was. It's emotionally very intelligent. It's about something that, as a twelve-year-old, I certainly wouldn't have experienced myself. But it, it, did something to me. So that's my that's my excuse mm. <laughs> for, for using the, for choosing this this person. But I chose Roberta Flack as
0: my inspiration. Now you, how did you discover her for the first time? I guess you said you were twelve. So what's that on the radio, on a CD, in the car? And...
1: I lived in a little village. uh, My family is still there. It's a place called Aber It's a tiny village in South Wales in the valleys. It's a mining village or was a mining village. And I lived on one side of the valley and I'd go down the hill and up the other side to the town, which was called Bargoid. So I lived in Aber Mm -hmm. and the town was called Bargoid. And in Bargoid was a little high street and we had a Woolworths. And Woolworths sold everything from sweets. They had a fantastic pick and mix. (laughs) to, you know, school books, to school uniform, and a music selection, which is where I bought my first LPs, which is where I bought my first music, everything. first came from that shop. And they used to have a bucket at the front, a basket that had, like, broken records, broken toys, broken box of Ariel Ultra, Mm -hmm. you know, like, random things. And in this basket was a cracked CD with with a black-and-white picture very, um, um, uh, it was like it was not. It's not distorted, but it was pixelated, like almost pixelated, grainy. Grainy was the word. Sorry, I mm-hmm. wanted to use of a of a black woman's face, very close up, um, and at the bottom it had "Killing Me Softly." That's all, really. I noticed. I didn't even notice the name, and I had I had a pound left, and it was it was something like fifty pence or ninety nine pence or something. So I bought it. And I took it home, and uh, twelve years old. And I had a CD player in my bedroom, and I put it in, closed the the, the flap, press play, and the first track is this guitar chord, and it's 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 extremely simple. And then this woman's voice starts to sing, and I, I've never heard such a pure, open release of emotion come from anybody's voice at that point in my life. And um, it just, it became, it became everything to me. I would listen to, I would listen to it all the time. Every, every night it would be the song I'd fall asleep to. If I felt sad or I was going through my, you know, my prepubescent hormonal craziness, it would be a song that I would listen to. I didn't know why I was relating to it. I hadn't kissed anybody. I hadn't fell in love with anybody. I, you know, but it did something. It was more about her and her voice, and just the sound that she makes. It's a sound that just feels so connected to her emotion. And from that moment, I started to understand vibrato. I used to understand timing. I understood the license a singer has. To feel free when singing a song, you hear it a lot. I hear it a lot in adele 's voice quite often how she she pa- she f- plays with phrasing she she does things i don 't hear other she 's mimicked massively now in the charts by other singers who do the, what she does and i I always felt that with roberta 's voice you know and i um I have sadly never seen her live, which would be an absolute dream, but it 's a song that's stayed with me and if you asked any of my friends over the last mm. 30 years who, who know me, uh, what would be the song Luke sings when he's drunk or when he's happy or what would be the song he sings in anything, they would, they, you wouldn't be able to finish the sentence before they would tell you the <laughs> first time ever I saw your face. So that's how, that's how much it means to me. I mean, were you kind of interested in music before that, or did that change everything? That like, song. No, that was it. That was the beginning. And from listening to Roberta Flack, and also listening to the rest of the album, which is incredible. Donny Hathaway is on that uh, so, uh, on, on the album. Uh, is it Donny Hathaway? Don- yeah, Don- yeah. And I became a fan of his, and then I started to listen to. Like it opened up a huge, you know, cavern of voices from. That era and those, that sort of sound from um, oh, this is where my mind goes. Like I'm terrible with names, but people like Jennifer Holiday, Aretha Franklin, Tina Turner, Nina Simone. Those sounds, that period in in music, um, just they're on my playlists all the time. Yeah which must have been quite different because I guess what's going on around you
0: at that point in time is that either Nirvana will take that. And this is yeah. Like that.
1: And I listened to not so much Nirvana, um, although I'm, I've, I'm a much later uh, fan of, of Nirvana. It came to me much later. <laughs> I, I, mean, I was quite a sensitive kid. And I... Uh, yeah, the, it, I needed... I, I was very sensitive. So it came a lot down to lyrics. It came a lot down to the melody. Um... I like I like a story and I like something that takes you on a journey or you feel like you're hearing the heartstrings being pulled of that person who's singing. And I guess when you hear Roberta Flack sing things like First Time Ever I Saw Your Face, you are listening to someone who's been through that or or feels like they've been through that. You know, it sounds like they have. Um, But yeah, you're right. I did. I did have a much older taste in music than my age was at the time, but that also has to do with my dad. My dad and my mum, they, my dad's a big fan of music, but most of his taste sort of stopped in the late 70s. Mm. (laughs) So we basically, all the music we had in our house was from Beatles, David Bowie, The Stones, ABBA, Queen, um, Bay City Rollers, uh, you know, that kind of music, The Drifters. I, my taste was, all of that, and then what else was going on in the charts when I was a kid as well, you know. And then, you know, I discovered the Hit Factory and Pete Waterman and Kylie and Rick Astley and Hazel Dean and Pepsi Mm -hmm. and Shirley and Salt and Pepper, you know, and Sinita and all those, you know, that whole generation which I was brought up on, which was, you know, Jason Donovan. Those songs definitely pay part of my soundtrack as well. Glossy big pop with big production, whereas
0: the polar opposite would be the thing you go got to sleep to.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, there's certain things you want to fall asleep to, and Better the Devil You Know is probably not (laughs) the sort of track I want to fall asleep to, whereas Killing Me Softly or uh, First Time Ever I Saw Your Face is a... It's just just beautiful. It's perfect. So having found a crack CD Mm -hmm. in a bargain
0: bin... How did you then kick on your interest? I mean, was that kind of all you had for a while until you were older with her? Or did you go looking for other records?
1: I did. I I I, I bought other records, but I didn't have any money, you know, mm. so I just played that CD over and over and over. And interestingly, that's all I needed for a very long time. I, and I literally can... I know every single track on the album. Um, and when she sings with Donnie, I sing Donnie's side of it and then I sing her side of it. And then... Uh, all the harmonies and uh, yeah I I could literally do an album of I could just redo her album Mm -hmm. (laughs) and just do the whole it's funny I used to mimic her vibrato I got so far with the obsession I used to mimic her vibrato I breathe at the same time as her in that track I I, it's extraordinary I listen to it so many times it's literally ingrained in my in my psyche it's fascinating so having had that experience and got into it Mm
0: did you consider at the time, and were we already kind of into musical theatre at that point in your life, or...?
1: No. No. No, not at all. Um, I mean, we used to have two sisters, so I'm an only child, me and my mum and dad, we had a little garden with a caravan in the garden. <clears throat> we had two sisters that um, lived in our caravan for a while. Um, sounds odd, but yeah, that's what <laughs> happens sometimes. And they lived in our caravan. They were really lovely sisters, And one of them liked musical theatre, and she'd been to London to see *Phantom of the Opera*, when it just not just opened, but it was still the big thing, the big deal. You know, this record-breaking, massive show. And she bought the double LP, you know, and for the younger generation, the double LP is like big Mm vinyl-sized booklet Mm. with massive production photographs, right? That showed you whatever it was, and for musical theatre. It showed you almost a whole set. And it was magnificent. And I remember sitting on a lap at like seven, seven years old and she's playing the music and showing me the different things. And that was my first knowledge of what it was. But I still couldn't, couldn't like understand exactly what that was until my mum, probably when I was about 13, we went to see Joseph and his Technicolor coat. And um, I was like, Wow people are. They, this is their job they get to sing on stage for a living you know and then it wasn't until I was 16 and left home when I started having singing lessons did it then sort of become a remote possible idea of being a real job you know but um, up until that point I, it was just you know something that you went to see it was somebody else's job to entertain you not, not mine so when you left home at 16, I mean, was that very much the kind of Dick Whitties go to
0: London and make a living type? Yeah, up?
1: yeah, very Billy Elliot of yeah. me, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I moved to Cardiff first, and then I worked everywhere. I, was, I worked in River Island as a shoe, 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 shoe department, then I worked as a mailboy in a bank, I worked in a bar, and when I was working in the bank was when I went to uh, London for the scholarship audition, and that's when I came home, and a week later they called my singing teacher to say they wanted to offer me a three-year scholarship to the London Studio Centre, and And that's when my whole life changed. Yeah, I I packed up my small amount of belongings I had from being away from home for like maybe nine months. And I arrived, I was 17 by the time I came to London. And yeah, 1997, I arrived the day Diana died in London. It was a very strange time to enter this gigantic city with a city that was mourning. Uh, You know, it was a very weird moment, but it's my home and it's been my home ever since 24 years later. I'm still here. And you get there, and obviously, you start on a scholarship. At that point, do you, I
0: mean, had you thought maybe, you know, I could be a singer, I could start, you know, playing gigs and things like that? Or
1: were at that point where you quite focused on? No, they don't give you any chance to think of being anything other than a musical theatre <laughs> actor. You, when you're there, you are learning dancing, you, are, you, wait, you do ballet every morning. I'd never danced in my life. I mean, I certainly hadn't put a pair of tights mm. on. And all of a sudden, every morning, I've got a leotard and a pair of tights, mm. and I'm having to dance with people. I didn't know anything about dancing. But it was what I had to do. And it's interesting, you know, I, I, I couldn't get out of it. I'd said yes. And, I, and those first few months in musical theatre college, I just wanted to disappear. I thought, what have I done? I mean, this is a, this is a stupid idea. What was I thinking? You know, there's more to this than I realised. But somehow I kept going. I kept working at it. I kept learning and, and absorbing everything around me and, and relying on everyone that was good at their job around me and all the people I went to college with they'd all been dancing since they were kids and I was like okay I'm just gonna have to keep doing this and I knew my forte was singing I knew that I always rose to the top when it came to singing and that was my thing I wasn't much good at anything else but when it came to singing I was great and I could get better and I'm gonna learn to be a dance I can dance and I'm gonna learn to be stagecraft and presence and all that stuff so yeah that's sort of what we did and and it all sort of worked out because I went straight from college into the first musical at 20 years old and at 28 I was still doing it. You know, It wasn't easy and I did feel like I struggled a little bit during that time that I didn't get the opportunities I wish I had. I don't know whether I flourished as to the, uh, to be the best actor on stage as I could, could have been. It took a little later when I got to 28, 29 when then I ended up doing a play at the Donmar which really was a moment when I got to really you know spread my wings and prove not just to myself but to people watching that i was capable of being a you know an actor not just that could sing and tell a story but could do it without the music and
0: you know during those times when you're in avenue q and all the various other productions you're in was roberta still your nightly kind of
1: soundtrack massively yeah always she's always there like i said you can ask anyone from my life what's luke's favorite song and no one would ever wait a second to tell you what song it would be and it always will be it'll be the song I sing it's on my album for god's sake I mean I literally couldn't I mean how was that process because a lot of
0: people if it's their favorite song wouldn't want to go near it
1: yeah no I, I wanted to sing it I've been singing it I sing it all the time wherever I am I it's a beautiful track and I feel like I've made it my own over the years and when we recorded it on the album I did it in one take I didn't need to do it more than that and that's why it's so magical, because it's just, it's in my, it's in me. It's like, it's in my head, it's in my heart. And uh, I just love the song. I just absolutely
0: love it. Having had the dream of, you know, being a recording artist, I mean, how did you actually find the process? I mean,
1: what was it like being produced like that for the first time? Brilliant. Yeah. I was with people I trust and I love and respect massively. Steve Anderson has been my friend for almost 15 years. And Steve Softly, who has helped, who's been producing it with him, um, these people I've known for a very long time, and um, they were there with me. You know, it's like I'm three pals in a room, and I trusted their their advice. Sometimes I disagreed with some choices we we had, and then we talked about it. And I sometimes I won, sometimes they won, sometimes I went, okay, well, let's try it. You know this business better than I do. Um, they were braver than me sometimes which is great and i needed to lean on them and go okay if you think this is a good track to choose we'll do it you know and i think what we have now is 12 tracks which are like so uh varied and powerful and huge sort of massive anthem sized tracks to really strip back soulful melancholic ballads and um and I, yeah, I think it's. I th- I'm really proud of it. I think we've done a really good job. But it's important. It was important to
0: you to have that kind of rawness and that real intimacy on some songs?
1: 100. percent I think it's fine to sing a nice tune, but unless you're connected to to the to what the person is saying and what they are trying to relay, you know, you there's some tunes you go, oh, I love that tune. What are they singing about? Having a clue. Couldn't care less. Just like the tune, and I'm humming the tune. Well, that's fair enough. But then you're missing something very important because with First Time Ever I Saw Your Face, you know, it is about such a moment in that person's life that they remember the first time they touched that other person's lips, they slept next to that person, they could feel their heartbeat through their skin. You know, it's like, there's so many beautiful, powerful messages being delivered through that song and you hear every single one of them. I think that's important. And so... The songs I chose, really the messages in each of them have a really powerful meaning and they, they're they all about love, they're all about pain, they're all about heartbreak, they're all about celebration of love and uh, relationships, how hard they can be. It's something that we've all experienced in life and sometimes more successfully some mm-hmm. others than other, than other people. So, Having done it, I mean,
0: are you going to get the chance to tour and play? I mean, is that something you want to do, can do, or we've got time to do?
1: Yeah, no, I absolutely want to do it. It's, we're talking about when we can do it next year, but it's definitely on the books. We've been, uh, I mean, for me, that would be the icing on the cake. You know, you've, I've recorded the album. Hopefully, you know, people will hear the album and they'll really enjoy it and then they'll want to hear me tour. But for me, singing live is what I love to do. I mean, it's the, it's magical to have an audience to sing to that want to hear you sing, doing it with a band, singing these songs that I love, and being able to tour it and take it to places around the world would be just the best thing ever. And that really is what we plan to do next year. Um, We're already trying to work out when, for how long, and where.
0: So back to kind of, back to Roberta. We always ask our guests for a hidden gem, something that people wouldn't know outside the kind of obvious songs of what she'd done. And that record that you played to death, is there a song that you think it's skipped over that people should come back to? Yeah, Set the Night
1: to Music. Again, uh, it's another track written by the incredible Diane Warren, who also wrote If I Could Turn Back Time, which means I've got two tracks written by mm-hmm. Diane Warren. No, one track by Diane Warren, but she set, set, the, set the night to music is a track that Roberta Flack sings, which is beautiful. Uh, yeah, it's a great track. And that's on the album, um, but I can't remember... When that, what, I don't know when that song was first released, but it's beautiful. And maybe people don't know it so
0: well. And finally, we ask people what their kind of ultimate masterpiece is, but I guess that would be the first time I saw your face for that,
1: you. That's the answer. First time ever I saw your face. For me, that would be the masterpiece. Doesn't date ever? Doesn't matter no. how many plays? Hell no. I think it's quite clear the fact that so many people tried to cover it. I sometimes cover it well, sometimes cover it not so well. But uh, it's beautiful. Well, Luke Evans, thank you very
0: much for letting us hear your inspiration, and yeah, we look forward to seeing you on tour in twenty twenty. Thank you very much. You. If you enjoyed today's episode, then want to join us next time, we'll be speaking to Chris that better known as Dashboard Confessional. He'll be opening up about his lifelong love of Robert Smith and all things The Cure. To get that, and the rest of the first series of My Inspiration, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. Full information on today's episode, as well as all the others, can be found on our website. Just visit hmv.com slash podcast for full details.